Hey everyone, happy Thursday to all of you, or perhaps it's not a very happy Thursday, especially after you hear what I have to say. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you have not already subscribed to the show, please do so. You can do so in one of three simple ways. You can go to either the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store and simply download the free Podbean app and subscribe that way. Or you can actually search for The Jamie Dury Show in the Google Podcast Store or the iTunes App Store and subscribe that way. So either way, download the Podbean app, search for The Jamie Dury Show podcast and go that route. Or simply subscribe directly through your iTunes App Store or your Google Play Store. Now, if you're a listener of this show, particularly if you're a regular listener, you obviously have an interest in politics and the interest in the current state of affairs uh, of the United States uh, from a governmental perspective, a societal perspective, and a fiscal perspective, to say nothing of our standing on the world stage. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. For those of you who are in the know, it's no secret that the United States national debt is out of control. And I mean really out of control. As we speak, the United States government owes in excess of $28 trillion. Now, whenever you express a numerical figure in the trillions, people don't need a calculator to figure out it's a lot of money. But to put it in perspective so you get a sense of just how substantial it is, the current gross domestic product of the United States, meaning the total sum of all goods and services, the total annual creation of wealth, is just about $20 trillion. This is not what the government takes in in taxes. In 2021, revenue to the Treasury from all sources was just under $4 trillion, something on the order of uh, $3.863 trillion, to be exact, for fiscal year 2021. That's what it's estimated to be. So, let's round that up to four. If the government took every dime that it took in in taxes and payroll taxes, everything, didn't fund the government at all, and just devoted every dime of it to retiring our debt and paying it off, it would take them seven full years to do so. And that's without any government services, no defense, no nothing. Nobody making any money if you're a government employee. Nothing. There would be no government. We would just be paying off the debt. That's how deep in debt we are. And people are really, really unsure about how all this works. People very often confuse the national debt with the budget deficit. Well, let me clear it up for you now, and then I'm going to tell you about an inventive plan hatched by some intellectuals and endorsed by that lunatic and that piece of crap, Rashid Tlaib, as a way of getting us out of this problem. The national debt and the budget deficit are two different things. The budget deficit is simply how much more in each fiscal year the United States government spends in excess of what it takes in or what it is expected to take in. So in other words, if the government's annual budget in a given year 
is say seven trillion uh, or five trillion dollars, and the government is only expected to take in, as I said, just under four trillion dollars. Well, then the government has a deficit in that year of in excess of one trillion dollars. The national debt is the sum total of all our budget deficits since the beginning of the republic. And we're spiraling out of control. It just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. Now, how do you get out of it? Well, one of the best ways to get out of it would be to stop spending what we're spending and start retiring some of the debt. But nobody seems interested in doing that. Everybody seems interested in growing the government, particularly the Democrats. Everywhere you go, they're giving away money, giving away money, giving away money. Well, now they've come up with a really, really cute plan of how they're going to do all this. They're going to create money. They're just going to snap their fingers and create money. And they're going to do this by exploiting a loophole in federal law. It's a loophole in federal law that governs the United States Mint. Now, since the fiscal year of 1996, I'm reading from some articles on the internet. I'm going to read this particular excerpt. The U.S. Mint has operated under the United States Mint Public Enterprise Fund, PEF for short. And this has been authorized by the Public Law 104-52, and it's codified as 31 U.S.C., 5136. Now, the Public Enterprise Fund eliminates the need for appropriations. They don't have to get permission or money to do anything. Proceeds from the sales of circulating coins to the Federal Reserve Banks, bullion coins to authorized purchasers, and numismatic items to the public and other customers are paid into this PEF fund and provide the funding for the Mint operation. So they are self-funding. The Mint is, not the government. The Mint. The Mint is self-funding because they have the ability to mint coins and sell them to people who would like to buy them, and therefore that, um, that action allows them to fund themselves. All circulating bullion and numismatic operating expenses and capital investments incurred for the Mint's operations and programs are paid out of this PEF fund. Now, by law, all funds in the PEF are available without fiscal year limitation. So revenues determined to be in excess of the amount required by the PEF are transferred to the United States General, uh, sorry, United States Treasury General Fund as off-budget and on-budget receipts. Off-budget receipts consist of seniorage, which is the difference between the receipts from the Federal Reserve System from the sale of such circulating coins at face value and the full costs of minting and distributing circulating coins. Seniorage is deposited periodically to the general fund where it reduces the government's need to borrow. Okay, so now you have the general picture. Using arbitrary numbers, it costs the federal government uh, $20 to make a silver coin. And because it's got uh, Barack Obama's face on it or Donald Trump's face on it, it's a special coin and it sells in excess 
of that figure. It's worth more than the value of the precious metal used to, to create it. So now it sells for $50. So there's a profit there of $30, and there's expenses. And that $30 can now be transferred to the Treasury Fund. So some people have decided to take this to the extreme, and they think that they can just mint any coin they want. And if they mint a coin that's big enough and worth more uh, than any coin in history, that that can solve our debt prices. Now, this concept was taken to the extreme. The concept is that they're going to make a trillion-dollar coin. And that trillion-dollar coin would generate $1 trillion in seniorage, which would be off-budget or numismatic profit, which would be on-budget, and it would be transferred to the Treasury. And it's based on the authority granted by this law that I mentioned before, Section uh, 31 U.S.C., Section 5112 of the United States Code for the Treasury Department. Now, it's very curious because usually the minting of notes and other coins is very closely regulated. But for some reason that I've not been able to yet discern, there is a loophole with respect to the minting and issuing of platinum bullion coins, not gold coins, not silver coins. Coins made by any other metal are restricted to amounts of $50, $25, $10, $5, or a dollar. Platinum coins can be be minted in any denomination you choose. Any denomination. And hence, the concept of this trillion-dollar coin. The Treasury Department can mint and issue platinum bullion coins in any denominations the Secretary of the Treasury may choose. He doesn't even need Congress's permission or the President's permission. They've already given it by virtue of the passage of this law. The Secretary of Treasury alone can decide to issue a platinum bullion coin in any denomination. Therefore, if the Secretary decides to mint a $1 trillion coin or coins, it can take these coins and deposit them at the Federal Reserve Treasury account instead of issuing new debt. And now all of a sudden the government has new money. Isn't that interesting? This is literally taking the the term printing up new money to new heights. Now, let me give you the bad news. The bad news is it's all bullshit because we have not been on a gold standard. We have not been on a standard whereby our currency is backed by uh, something of real value. Our currency is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. In other words, it's as if you came to me for a loan. And I said, okay, I'll give you a loan. What is it you need? You say, well, I need, I need $100,000. Okay, uh, what are you going to collateralize that loan with? In other words, the bank, or in this case me, wants to know that you have a way to repay it. And you say, well, I have a home that's mortgage-free and it's worth $100,000. Uh, but I don't want to have to sell it to get this 100000 It's not liquid. Uh, I would have to sell my home to get the 100000 But I'll give you 
a mortgage on the home, basically giving me title on the home. If you'll give me the 100000 and then when I get the money back, I can pay you back and you can release the home. Okay, well, that's fair. Okay. And that's the way we worked for many years. We had a gold standard, and that's how our, our currency was secured. Now we don't have that. Now we have the full faith and credit. So how does that work? Well, that's you coming to me for that same $100,000 loan and me granting it to you based solely on my judgment of you as a good person and your, your honor that you're going to pay it. You're not going to default on it. That's what we operate under now. But people say, but that can't be, though, because now we're going to make this trillion-dollar coin. It's certainly it's worth a trillion dollars. Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's not worth a trillion dollars. It's only worth what the platinum is worth. The fact that the United States wants to call it a trillion-dollar coin or make X number of platinum coins that come to a trillion dollars doesn't make it worth a trillion dollars. Because I did a little math. I did a little research. I think you might find this interesting. The current value of platinum right now, as we speak, is just under $993 per ounce. So I did a little math to see if we wanted to make a coin worth a trillion dollars that's really worth a trillion dollars based on the prevailing price of platinum, we would need just under 63 million pounds of platinum at $993 an ounce. We would need so 16, so almost $1,600 a pound, the high 1,500s a pound of platinum. We would need 62 million, 63 million pounds of platinum to mint a coin or the equivalent of coins that could be minted, whatever number they were, that could be minted from 63 um, million pounds of platinum in order to have a trillion-dollar platinum coin or a multitude of platinum coins worth a trillion dollars in the aggregate. Are you following this? There's only one problem with that. Where do you acquire these 62 million pounds of platinum from for free? You have to pay for it. And if you have to pay for it, you have to pay a trillion dollars for it because that's the going market price. There's no break to the federal government. That's the going market price. So that doesn't work. So how does it work? Well, what it works is the way it's working right now with our paper money. They're going to mint a coin. The coin is going to contain some amount of platinum. But that platinum will no way even approach the actual value of a trillion dollars. There will not be a trillion dollars worth of platinum in that coin or coins. There will not be 62 million pounds of platinum used to manufacture this coin or number of coins. So where do we get this trillion dollars of money that the people think they can just write off all our debt and not have to increase the debt ceiling uh, from this coin? Back to the same thing it always was, the full faith and credit of the United States government. It's nothing more than printing money. It's just a fanciful way of printing money. It doesn't create any new wealth. And you'd be surprised that the intellectual weight that is behind these arguments to try and go for this, all manner of people uh, think this is good 
And of course, some think it's bad. Let's read on a little bit. Now, how did this thing first come to pass? Well, let me give you, first of all, some of the people that think this is good. The great constitutional law professor at Harvard, Lawrence Tribe, thinks that the legal basis of the trillion-dollar coin is sound and that the coin could not be challenged in court, as no one would have standing to do so. I think I would have standing to do so as an American citizen. I, I don't think, I, I think I could challenge that the, I'm not going to pay it because it's not worth it. And if I did pay it, I think if somebody did pay it or if a government paid it, a government could challenge it. If a private person or a government took a trillion dollars to buy this coin, I think they could challenge it and say, well, how is it worth a trillion dollars? It's not. It doesn't contain a trillion dollars worth of platinum. Now, Professor Jonathan Adler of Case Western Reserve University School of Law has said that he believes the legality of the trillion dollar coin to be dubious. Indeed, it is. It's dubious for the reasons I just mentioned. You don't need to ask a lawyer about this. All you need to do is ask an economist that's honest and knows about economics. Now, apparently this idea to mint this mega coin and send it to the Federal Reserve to pay off the debt was, first came to public uh, light and popularity by the Populist Party presidential candidate Bo Gritz back in 92. He had begun including it as part of his uh, stump speeches. This is what he was going to do. And it's gained more traction. Uh, it gained traction uh, in 2011, uh, once the debt ceiling crisis of the summer of 2011 was resolved, sort of faded. Then it gained, re it gained renewed attention, according to this article, in 2012, as the debt ceiling limit was being approached again. In early January, the economist Paul Krugman endorsed the idea and asserted that the opposition to the idea, I'm reading from a Wikipedia article now, was coming from people unwilling to admit the truth. The truth being that money is a social contrivance. Well, Jesus Christ, if, if, if money is a social contrivance, Mr. Krugman, how can we simply engineer ourselves out of debt? You trying to tell me that when the debt comes due, that the foreign countries that have bought our debt are just going to say, ah, it's just a social contrivance. We don't owe you anything. We'll just print up some more paper. Here it is. It's paid off. Because that's what it comes down to. Do you think that the Chinese or the Brits, because the Chinese, they do own a lot of our debt, but they don't own all of our debt. They don't even own the bulk of our debt. They own a very small percentage in terms of all of our debt. They own about 10% of it. Uh, the rest of it is, is owned by other countries, some of them friendly, some of them less friendly. But do you think all these countries that bought our debt would be satisfied if we minted a bunch of, uh, minted a trillion dollars worth of platinum coins and started saying, here, here, here's some of these coins. That's pretty good. That's basically a way of you, if you owed, um, just imagine you owed me that hundred thousand and instead you had the ability to print up your own little currency and it only cost you $10,000 in material to print up this currency that you have arbitrarily placed a $100,000 value on. And you can now for 10000 discharge your vet ostensibly under Lawrence Tribe's theory here because now all you have to do is just give me this, say, well, it's worth 100000 baby. Here you go. Even though it only cost me 10000 that's really all it's worth. This is fantasy. This, this, this fat little jerk from Manhattan, Jerry Nadler, he's endorsing it. 
um, Yale Law School's Jack Balkin has endorsed it and thinks it's a good idea, but it's all fantasy. You cannot simply arbitrarily assign a value to something and expect other people to accept that as real and valid. But people try and do this all the time. We see this in other industries. You know, years ago, people decided to do this with toys. I'm sure you've read how someone sold, let's say, an original G.I. Joe doll that was never opened and it was in the original box. Um, And it sold for many times what it was originally worth. But these are things that happen by random chance. And the fact that they happen by random chance and are so rare is what makes them valuable to collectors. They're not the order of things. For instance, someone bought a G.I. Joe for a nephew or some friend's child. And for whatever reason, the gift was never conferred upon that person. And it was sitting in the back of this person's closet for years, wrapped up. And now, 50 years later or 30 years later, or whatever it is, it's in pristine condition, and it's worth a lot of money because there simply aren't very many uh, G.I. Joes that were in the box and never opened. And now people from that took the idea that, well, let's buy all these toys today that are coming out, and we'll keep them forever in the hopes that they're going to be worth a fortune. Well, it's not going to pan out because technology is changing very rapidly. Certain toys that were valuable today may not be valuable years ago, and this year weight of numbers of people accumulating these things in great quantities defeats the purpose of uh, increasing their value because supply and demand is in full effect at all time. The law of supply and demand cannot be uh, discounted or eliminated. But people still try. Now, where you see this is in pretentious fields like art. But this notion that we're going to mint ourselves Uh, out of debt by creating a coin. This is nothing more than a ruse or artifice to make it look like we're not raising the debt ceiling when that's exactly what we're doing. Because at the end of the day, when you raise the debt ceiling, the bill comes due, people have to pay it. The United States has to pay it and they prevail upon the citizens through the awesome power of taxation to pay it. If you try and mint a coin that you arbitrarily say is worth $3 trillion or mint a number of coins that are worth $3 trillion in the aggregate and think you're going to discharge $3 trillion of debt to someone who's going to simply accept it on faith, well, if the coin itself is not worth $3 million, and I've explained to you how it's impossible for it to be, it's not worth $3 million in terms of its intrinsic value or material uh, used to, to manufacture it, then the only reason why some would accept, someone would accept that as currency is the, only, is the same reason they would accept any currency from the United States, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. So this is a way of essentially raising the debt ceiling by circumventing Congress. Make no mistake, that's all this is. It lets the, the politicians, instead of having to go on record and actually vote to increase the debt ceiling and let everyone know that they're taking us down a rabbit hole that we're never going to get out of, it can be done by the U.S. Mint with no uh, authority of Congress, no need to have appropriations, no need to have debate, no need to have the public uh, spotlight focused on it. It's just an alternative means of achieving the same thing. It does nothing for us. And it stinks. Let me reference just how much it stinks. There was a man by the name of Piero Manzoni. He was an Italian artist. He died 
at a rather young age. I believe he died at uh, 29 years of age. His exact cause of death escapes me, but we can all agree that 29 is premature death. One of the things he's most famously remembered for, and I remember reading uh, about this years ago in National Review Magazine. You remember National Review Magazine, the magazine that sued this show, so we changed the name to The Jamie Dury Show? Yeah, well, not surprised they would cover it, but he apparently wanted to expose the pretentious nature of art. He didn't let it be known at the time. We were able to glean this information in writings that were uh, uncovered after his death. And what he did was he created a great art in 1961. I say great because I'm doing it tongue-in-cheek. And the name of this particular piece of artwork that he created was called Merda di Artista. And this work consisted of 90 tin cans. And each of these tin cans were allegedly filled with 30 grams, which is 1.1 ounces, of his feces. That's right. I don't know how else to say it, but it was 30 cans, uh, sorry, 90 cans of shit. Uh, They were small cans, and they were labeled in multiple languages. And basically the label said, artists shit, contents 30 grams net, freshly preserved, Produced and tinned in May of 1961. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether there really was feces in these cans. Some people that claim to be in the know said that, uh, no, it was just filled with plaster. It was a hoax. Now, if it's filled with plaster of Paris, um, that would be fraud, if someone actually ever opened a can and showed that there was plaster of Paris in there, that would be, that would be a huge case of fraud. And Manzoni would have been in very bad shape had someone done that when he was alive. Uh, but apparently he was very, very slick. The cans are made of steel. And as such, they cannot be x-rayed. So no one can really x-ray the can to see what's inside it. If you open the can and it really turns out that it is what it says to be, you would have lost the value because now the can is now opened. But I've heard numerous stories over the years, uh, including stories uh, that were referenced in the National Review article I read a number of years ago, that these cans weren't sealed correctly, and some of them exploded, spreading the artist's artwork all over the place. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if the can was filled with plaster, there would be nothing inside the can that would decompose and cause gases to form, which would increase the pressure within the can, causing it to rupture. So the fact that there are so many of these incidents, supposedly, of the cans exploding, would indicate that there really was poop in it. But here's the real interesting point. The price. These things were valued far in excess of what they were worth. One tin was sold for 124,000 euros at Sotheby's back in 2007. Uh, In 2008, 
Tin number 83 was offered for sale at Sotheby's with an estimate value of 50,000 to 70,000 British pounds sterling. It sold for 97,250 British pounds. Back in 2015, uh, can number 54 was sold at Christie's for 182,500 pounds. In August of 2016, at an art auction in Milan, one of the tins sold for a new record of 275,000 euros, including the auction fees. Now, one can understand why something, any bit of artwork, would carry a greater value after the death of an artist, because obviously he can't produce any more work, and he certainly isn't going to produce any more poop. Now, the tins, supposedly, when Manzoni first canned them in 61, were valued, you ready for this, according to their equivalent weight in gold. At the time, gold only sold for $37 an ounce in 1961. $37 an ounce. Uh, The current price of gold, I will give it to you right now, the current price of gold is $1,758 an ounce. I think gold may have hit a record high of 2000 at some point or close to it, but $1,758 is a substantially uh, higher amount than it originally sold for uh, back in 1961. And yet, these cans of a dead man's poop are selling for prices 20 times the weight in gold. 20 times their worth in gold. Now, according to one of his closest friends, this fellow by the name of Agostino Bonolumi, he claims, he's the one that claims that the tins are not full of feces, but plaster. As I said, I disagree with that uh, because there's been just too many stories of cans explode, uh, exploding. Now, we may never know what ultimately was in these cans, Uh, There was a case where one man uh, supposedly exhibited a partially open can uh, of the artist's shit exhibit uh, back in 1989. It was called Open Can of Piero Manzoni. The can's contents, according to this article here, were difficult to identify Uh, being described by different people as paper wrapping with unidentified contents, an unidentifiable wrapped object, and a can within a can, and no one attempted to extract or open the inner object. So people really don't know. And then there was a um, piece of media coverage uh, based on a lawsuit in the mid-1990s when supposedly some museum, uh, some art museum in Denmark was accused by an art collector uh, of causing leakage of a can which had been on display in 1994, alleging that they had stored the can at an irresponsibly high temperature. And the lawsuit ended with the museum paying a quarter of a million Danish kroner as a settlement to the collector. Now, the thing that strikes me as interesting is, I don't know why the museum would pay that much uh, if they couldn't, if they didn't have a sense of what was in there. And number two, uh, I don't know why storing it at a high temperature would cause the can to explode if it was only filled with plaster. Again, 
I have to think that whatever is in that can is some type of biodegradable object where the process of decomposition would, uh, in fact, cause these things to happen, particularly if it was not sealed. Now, people buy canned goods in supermarkets all the time. They're biodegradable material, they're vegetables, but they're vacuum-packed and they're sealed. That's why you're always told never to buy a a swollen can, because a swollen can could be indicative of something spoiled. So if there was no air in there, I don't know how the decomposition process would begin. But again, we don't know. My point in giving you this little story is that if you can convince people that a can of someone's feces is worth 20 times more than its weight in gold, then you probably can convince some stupid people in the American public that we can mint our way out of debt with a trillion dollar coin or coins. But at the end of the day, neither is true and neither is worth it. You are being hustled yet again. And speaking of hustles, I wanted to speak about another little hustle, and that is the vaccine hustle because we have uh, more news on that front. Uh, I've been talking about immunity. I've been talking about the vaccines. I've been talking about these vaccine mandates. A lot of people are beginning to talk about vaccine mandates and how it's getting a little bit out of control. And I do know that there's legal precedent from Supreme Court cases where in certain situations they can mandate people get vaccines. Uh, But I'd like to know just how far that authority can extend or should extend. And I think that people who are not vaccinated and cannot demonstrate that they've had COVID and therefore don't have an acquired natural immunity, they probably are going to be up against it when trying to make an argument that they don't want to take the vaccine. But what about the people who do have acquired immunity? What about the people who have had COVID, and there's millions of them, and survived it? Well, there was a study I told you about, uh, I think it was last week. It was done in Israel, and it wasn't a small sample group. They studied two and a half million people who had had COVID and, uh, COVID and survived it. And they found, doing studies of these people, that they had an immunity level as a result of their naturally acquired immunity on orders of magnitude greater than anything you can get from any vaccine. I think people who are so positioned have a very strong argument, and I don't know how any court is going to deny it to them, saying that. Listen, we're not trying to act in a manner which puts other people at risk. What we're saying is we don't really think we are capable of putting other people at risk by virtue of us not getting the vaccine because we had the virus and we have five times the antibodies or more that we could possibly get from a vaccine. So why should we be forced to inject something in our body that maybe we don't trust and we certainly don't need? It's a valid question. Well, now we're getting additional information. Last week, Rand Paul really put the screws to Javier Becerra. He's the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. He's not a doctor. He's not a health professional of any kind. And here's a paraphrasing and para quotes from this interview. Senator Paul, are you a doctor, a medical doctor? His answer was, this is Becerra, I have worked over 30 years on health policy. You're not a medical doctor. Do you have a science degree? 
No. And yet you travel the country calling people flat earthers who have had COVID, looked at studies of millions of people, and made their own personal decision that the immunity they they naturally acquired is sufficient. Now, Paul was making this statement because he was trying to respond to a claim made by Becerra during an online forum back in mid-September, where he quoted, because some flat earthers, especially those in places of influence, choose to peddle fiction, we're losing more loved ones today than we were a few months ago. Assuming this fiction is the fact that the vaccine is not as good as natural immunity or that natural immunity is not as good as the vaccine, whichever way you choose to frame it. Um, He also asserted that the harm caused by those who lack confidence in and denigrate the vaccine cannot be overstated. I don't know about that. Most people who got the vaccine got it because they thought that like any other vaccine they got, once they got it, they were incapable of getting the disease. Now we're finding out that that's not the case at all. Even Fauci admits this. All it's supposed to do is attenuate the severity of the disease in most people, but it's not going to eliminate you from getting it. And Paul went on, but you presume to tell uh, over 100 million Americans who survived COVID that we have no right to determine our own care. You alone are on high and you've made these decisions, a lawyer with no scientific background and no medical degree. And now we're learning that scientists at the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer, who came out with, I believe, the first vaccine against COVID, now believe that natural immunity is superior to what you can get from the vaccine. Now, there's a great article in the Epic Times. Now, a lot of people try to pick on the Epic Times, but the fact is they cover things that most people don't cover. And this isn't just their research. This was uh, coverage on their part of information uncovered by Project Veritas. Let me read some pull quotes or largely from the article. Uh, because Becerra did not answer Paul's question about natural immunity, so other people have stepped in. Now, on October 4th, a Project Veritas expose revealed that multiple scientists at the COVID-19 vaccine maker Pfizer believe natural immunity is, su- immunity is superior to the immunity conferred by their own product. Quote, when somebody is naturally immune, like they got COVID, they probably have not better, but more antibodies against the virus, said Nick Carl a Pfizer biochemist, quote, because what the vaccine is, like I said, is a protein that's just on the outside. Uh, Carl continued referring to the spike protein on the surface of the Chinese Communist Party virus that the Pfizer biotech COVID-19 vaccine replicates with the ultimate aim being to induce immunity. And Carl went on. So it's just one antibody against one specific part of the virus, speaking of the vaccine. When you actually get the virus, you're going to start producing antibodies against multiple pieces of the virus, not only the outside portion, like the spike protein that the vaccine gives you, but the inside portion, the actual virus. So your antibodies are probably better at that point than the vaccination. And now another scientist, a senior associate scientist at Pfizer by the name of Chris Croce, also spoke to a Project Veritas journalist and said that natural immunity left people protected most likely for longer than any vaccination since there was a natural response. 
Quote, if you have COVID-19 antibodies built up, you should be able to prove that you have those built up, said another Pfizer scientist. But the media doesn't cover it this way. The media wants to make it seem like the very idea of natural immunity uh, doesn't exist or should be at least called into question. And that's not true. We've relied on natural immunity for much of human history to save society as a whole from a host of diseases, including the Spanish flu. So what is natural immunity exactly? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Natural immunity is the immunity you get after you've had a disease and recovered from it as a result of your own immune system. And your immune system has a very good memory and it remembers how to fight this disease the next time it comes across it. More technical terms, natural immunity involves the adaptive immune response. Thus, it could potentially include not only the antibody released in response to the spike protein, but also other antibodies along with various memory B and memory T cells. In short, the sort of broad and deep response that the Pfizer scientists who spoke to Project Veritas in their undercover interview were referring to. Vaccination is supposed to mimic or imitate natural immunity by promoting a manageable immune response that does not cause illness. Now, the CDC should know this full well, yet you go on their site and they're extremely vague. All these common sense facts are absent. Their website on natural immunity and vaccines is, quote, frustratingly vague and arguably misleading. It sidesteps the question of natural immunity's superiority or inferiority to vaccine-induced immunity in order to emphasize the real and serious dangers posed by many diseases for which vaccines are available. So in other words, they know full well that natural immunity and acquired immunity is superior to the immunity you get from vaccinations. But what they want to do is, in an effort to get you vaccinated for whatever nefarious reason they are so interested in getting everyone vaccinated, they use a scare tactic and just emphasize the fact that there's so many dire consequences to these diseases. So just don't question us, just get the vaccine. And as I said the other day, and I I said earlier, there probably will be an argument made to the government, and the government will side with uh, the CDC, that people who have never had COVID uh, should get the vaccine, and it'd be kind of tough in our current political climate to undercut that. But I think the argument is growing by the day uh, on the heels of these revelations coming out of Project Veritas, which is taken right out from Pfizer, from research scientists who work on the project. That coupled with that extensive study out of Israel that followed two and a half million people who had contracted COVID and recovered from it and discovered that their natural immunity against covid was longer lasting than anyone thought and on orders of magnitude greater than anything you could get from taking a vaccination. People who fall into those categories, I think, are going to be in a very good position to challenge these government mandates. And I think if the evidence is presented in a cogent fashion to an impartial and learned jurist, uh, they're going to rule uh, in favor of the people who don't want the vaccine based on the fact that they have acquired immunity. Here's a quote from the CDC's website. Some people believe that naturally acquired immunity, immunity from having the disease itself, is better than the immunity provided by vaccines. 
However, natural infections can cause severe complications and can be deadly. Yes, but that's true. No one is saying go out and get the disease, but these people have already had it and they've recovered from it. So why shouldn't they be allowed to reap the benefits of it, which is not to get the vaccine? It goes on to say, with no explanation and at a real cost to public trust and understanding, the CDC has run two separate claims simultaneously. The first claim is that the infection with COVID-19 presents more risks than vaccination, particularly in older and obese individuals, and may in fact be reasonable, though it is not the focus of the article. If true, it would suggest that people should not intentionally contract the disease in order to gain natural immunity. Yet the second claim, namely that natural immunity to COVID-19 is weaker than vaccine-induced immunity, does not stand up to scrutiny. For one thing, it runs contrary to our experiences with all of our past diseases, which I had mentioned before. As Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, again, this is from that article in the Epic Times, and San Francisco pointed out in a detailed Twitter thread on the duration of COVID-19 immunity. She said a 2008 Nature article showed that the survivors of the 1918 influenza pandemic, the Spanish flu is otherwise known as, were still able to mount an immune response to the 1918 virus roughly 90 years later. That means there were people who were very, very young who survived the Spanish influenza in 1918. They were still alive 90 years later. And doing testing on them, it showed they were still able, even at 90 years of age, to have an immune response sufficiently efficacious to mount a response against the Spanish influenza. Additionally, it says here, as Rand Paul noted while questioning Javier Becerra, the CDC considers natural immunity including presumptive natural immunity for those born before 1957, an acceptable substitute for the measles vaccination. Similarly, U.S. Army Regulation 40-562 states that prior infection and consequent natural immunity can be the grounds for a medical exemption from immunization, a regulation to which Two active duty service members have appealed in their lawsuit against Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's vaccine mandate for all troops. Early results from Denmark, published in The Lancet in March of this year, hinted at the protective value of infection. In that study, which involved testing 69% of the country's population, prior infection was found to shield people reasonably well from reinfection. A little less so among older groups, but that's to be expected. Older people are less hardy uh, on all matters of uh, health-related issues. So my point, my friends, is that I've been telling you this all along, that natural immunity, herd immunity, is the way out of this thing, not vaccinations. And the same government, which is saying that vaccines are the way to go, has never taken this position before relative to other pathogens, and the people who developed the vaccines are telling you by, very, by the very nature of the way they work, they cannot by definition provide you with the same level of protection that natural immunity to the virus can provide. We are being lied to. We are being beguiled. We are being seduced. We're being manipulated by fear. 
for a reason yet I still do not understand unless this is all about financial incentive or is it simply about controlling a population to show that they can control that population because if they control it in this instance they can control it in other instances when they do have a more nefarious goal for the Jamie Dury show I'm Jamie Dury